All right, this is Jack, and you're listening to Good For Now. If you want to learn more, listen to our back catalog, or subscribe, visit us at gfnpodcast.com. Again, that's gfnpodcast.com. Mike Foote is a former state senator from Colorado and one of the legislators who helped pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact in 2019 and currently advocates for Yes on 113, a ballot measure in Colorado that aims to guarantee the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes. Joining me today is Mike Foote. Mike, welcome to Good For Now. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Now, first things first, I know that we've had wildfires out west uh, for for weeks now. I'm in I'm in Oregon and California, Oregon, Washington has been has been on fire and it's made national news. But you're out in Colorado still, if if I'm correct. And you guys have been battling some fires out there as well. Are you and yours doing okay? Well, sure, we're fine. Um, I mean, clearly the entire state has um, issues with the wildfire smoke, and certainly everybody, I think, knows people that live in the areas that are being affected. But um, we had our biggest fire ever in terms of acreage burned earlier this summer, and we still have a fire that's burning now, um, even though we had a couple of cold, cold snaps, and it's still burning up in the northern part of the state that has turned into, I think, the third or fourth biggest fire that we've ever had. So uh, it's, it's, it's been tough, but um, you know, we'll make it through it. I think just like you all will make it through it eventually. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been challenging. Um, but I think all of 2020 has been challenging. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically though, is it's in the middle of, of an election year, uh, you're a former state senator. You've uh, you were one of the legislators, as I said in the introduction, who helped pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact uh, in 2019. And there's a lot of uncertainty around any uh, any election in a good year, um, but this time around, in particular. Uh, the Electoral College is at the forefront, and we're, we're talking about the same states, once again, that might determine the election. We're talking about Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, uh, and I wanted to get a, a sense from you about this ballot measure that, that is on the ballot in Colorado, Proposition 113. Um, but first, before we get into that, can you give us a little background on what the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is that you helped pass in Colorado? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go because you were um, uh, talking about a lot that had to be unpacked there in that last question. So let's start first things first, which is what the National Popular Vote is. And then if it's okay, I'll talk a little bit about its history in Colorado. And I think that might lead you to where you want to the where you want to go from there. So the popular vote is a way to make sure that our president is elected in the same way that every other elected official is elected throughout the country. That is that everybody's vote counts. One person equals one vote, and the most popular votes uh, is um, or the candidate that wins the most popular votes is the one that wins the election. That's really the national popular vote in a nutshell. Now, what's really 
there's many things that are interesting about it, but what's particularly interesting about it is that the way that we elect our president is actually a state-based system. Under Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution, the uh, Electoral College is a state-based institution. So the states themselves have the power and indeed the only authority to determine how their presidential electors are allocated. And so the national popular vote is a state-based system to reform how our president is elected from the current system to a different system, a system that does uh, allow for one person to equal one vote and for the most votes to actually win the presidency. In Colorado, we passed the National Popular Vote Agreement. We joined the National Popular Vote Agreement back in 2019. And when I say we, it was the legislature that passed it and the governor signed it. So in 2019, we became a part of the National Popular Vote Interstate Agreement or Compact, depending on, uh, they're both kind of interchangeable words. And uh, we became one of 15 states plus Washington, D.C. that is part of the agreement. So um, you have to have 270 electoral votes to win the presidency. And the number of states that have so far joined the agreement equal 196 electoral votes. So it won't go into effect for the 2020 election, but if 74 more electoral votes come on board, or more accurately, seven uh, states that represent 74 more electoral votes come on board, then it will go into effect. So we're two thirds of the way there. We just have to get states with 74 more electoral votes. Now we passed it in 2019, we made Colorado part of the agreement but the Colorado Constitution has a provision in it that allows, under certain circumstances, for the people of Colorado to gather enough signatures to try to get rid of a law that the legislature passed. I'm sure we're all familiar with the initiative process, which is putting something into law that is not already in the law. But this is a referendum process that um, asks the people of Colorado whether or not they want to keep something in the law that's already in the law. So that's what Proposition 113 is. The opponents of national popular vote are very vocal and uh, they gathered volunteers as well as raised a bunch of money to pay signature gatherers to go around the state and gather enough signatures to put it on the ballot. So it's on the ballot as Proposition 113 and it asks Colorado voters to approve what we did in 2019. So if somebody approves of the national popular vote and the fact that Colorado is in it, they would vote yes. Um, if they disapprove of it, then they vote no. And um, ultimately, if more yes votes than no votes are lodged, then we end up staying in the national popular vote agreement after that. It's, it, it's unbelievable to me to think that, that today we're just asking the question, does my vote count, requires, there's so many different answers to that. It's either yes, maybe. No, or yes, but. And I think this falls into the yes, but category because like you said, you're, it's in the current system that we have, your vote doesn't go directly into the popular vote. It's essentially telling your state delegates how to vote uh, for you, which is not a direct, um, a direct vote, correct? That's right. And, and the, the, that's how it's designed in the Constitution. It, it actually, there's a, a very interesting history behind the Electoral College and how it came about. But really, the, most of the founders envisioned the Electoral College as being a group of 
wealthy white landowners that would get together and decide who would be best to be our presidents. Kind of like, I guess, the Pope is elected, where everybody meets into the same room and then the white puff of smoke comes out of the chimney when somebody is selected. That's how a lot of the founders actually envisioned it, and that's actually pretty much how it worked out for our first president, George Washington. But it really changed after that, once we got to our second president and beyond. But the founders built really maximum flexibility into how the states determine how their electors are allocated. And actually, there's been many systems that have been used. State legislatures have in the past chosen their presidential electors. Uh, the governors of a state have chosen presidential electors. Of course, popular vote has chosen electors. That's what we have in Colorado and what you have in Oregon as well. What's called a winner-take-all system, which is that the candidate that wins the most popular votes within that particular state gets all of those states' electors, the winner-take-all system. Um, 48 out of 50 states currently have the winner-take-all system. The two exceptions are Nebraska and Maine. And they have a congressional district system where the most votes within a congressional district gets that district's elector. So it's really changed a lot over the years, uh, but we've had the majority of our states in the winner-take-all system for uh, probably the last 100 years or so. So that's what everybody knows, but there's nothing in the Constitution that requires a winner-take-all system. In fact, some of the founders, like Jefferson and Madison, before they passed away, wrote letters talking about the dangers of a winner-take-all system and that they didn't like it because by that point in time, many states had started to adopt a winner-take-all system. But be that as it may, most states now, almost all of them have a winner-take-all system. The national popular vote works within the same language that allows states to choose a winner-take-all system, but changes those electors to where the presidential candidate that gets the most popular votes throughout the country gets those presidential electors. And so it still is an indirect system it still is something that uses the Electoral College, but the result of it is the most votes wins, which I think, and, and I think most people agree, really is the way that we should elect our president. Yeah, I mean, the, the latest polls say uh, about 61, 62% of the population uh, are in support of a popular vote uh, system. So, um, and it's, it's been growing since I think 2000, every single year it's been, that number goes up. And in 2000, that was the first election that I was able to vote in. And that was, if people are listening and not familiar, that was Bush versus Gore. Um, I went to sleep with Florida in Gore's category. Like Gore right. had won Florida and I went to sleep and I had been kind of new to politics and learning the system at that time. You know, I was 18 years old. Um, my introduction to politics was was uh, Bill Clinton um, and the Monica Lewinsky scandal. That was my introduction to politics and how the systems of government work. It wasn't learning it in school. It was that. That was my education. And then, of course, during the election, Bush v. Gore, um, it, I went to sleep thinking that's it because that's what I was told. If whoever wins Florida this election is going to, is going to win the election. And that was um, true. And that, yeah, and that was true. And I, I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and the TV was still on. And I'd, I saw that they had changed it to red. 
And I was like, what is happening here? And, and everything changed from, from that moment on. And that is when I started learning more about the, the Electoral College. It was like three o'clock in the morning when they switched uh, Florida from Gore to Bush. Uh, that was my introduction to the Electoral College. Uh, and it was pretty devastating. <laughs> Yeah, well, so there's um, all kinds of interesting storylines uh, on that election for sure. That was uh, one of the main reasons why the National Popular Vote Interstate Agreement started. It, it was actually started as, as um, a different way to try to get to the same result. In the past, there have been a number of attempts to amend the Constitution to allow for a direct election. And the, the most recent, if you want to put recent in air quotes, the most recent serious attempt was in 1969, where President Nixon agreed with the constitutional amendment for a direct election. There was bipartisan support in the Congress, and there were a number of really important interest groups on board too, like the um, Nationwide Chamber of Commerce, uh, many of the important unions, and others were all on board with this process. So it was looking pretty good, but it stopped in its tracks in the US Senate because Southern states filibustered the idea. And that's because Southern states have always had disproportionate influence and continue to have something of disproportionate influence in the, in the system that we have. So they didn't want it to change. And I guess from a, uh, that perspective, I guess who can blame them because they were doing better than they should in terms of representation. So that effort has been tried and it failed and it's not likely to succeed. But the national popular vote is a way that you can get to the principle of one person, one vote and the principle of the most votes winning by just having an agreement amongst the states under uh, Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution. So that started after Bush v. Gore, uh, not immediately, but the first bill was introduced in Colorado, actually, in 2006. It didn't pass in 2006 in Colorado, but uh, it did ultimately pass for the first time in 2007 in the state of Maryland. And then since then, it's picked up a couple of states here and there, in 2019, we picked up four states. That was uh, Delaware, Colorado, New Mexico, and Oregon actually joined the agreement back in 2019. And so now, as I said before, it's got 15 states plus Washington, D.C. that are part of it. But um, if you look back at 2000, one really interesting aspect of the national popular vote, or one interesting aspect that the national popular vote would change would be the fact that Florida and 500 and some votes in Florida determined how the entire country would go. Um, and that's because of the winner-take-all system. Whoever won Florida by just one vote was going to win all of those 20, I think 28 electors at the time that they had. Hmm. So it was important to win Florida by one vote. And as it turned out, uh, officially, at least, George W. Bush won Florida by 500 and some popular votes. 537. Now, 537. Okay, so under a national popular vote, that would be a lot different because it would not just necessarily come down to 537 votes in the state of Florida because you're counting every vote equally throughout the entire country and all the votes that everybody casts goes towards a grand total. So you're talking about a margin of 500,000 or a million, or like in 2016, 3 million that separates the, the first place and the second place candidates. So what we're seeing now is a lot more emphasis on voter suppression or foreign disinformation that is focused on just a couple of states 
states like Florida, states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, these are swing states where if you can flip 10,000 votes in that one state, you could change the entire election. Under a national popular vote, as I said, the margin of victory is most likely going to be in the hundreds of thousands or the millions. So if you were a foreign adversary or somebody that wanted to engage in voter suppression, you could change 10,000 votes in Michigan. And that's still bad. I certainly don't think that's a good idea. It will have local ramifications. But flipping 10,000 votes in one state will make no difference in who wins the presidency. So a national popular vote actually would be a much more secure way, uh, as well as just a much more inclusive way to determine who our president is. That's a really good point. I hadn't even thought about that. And earlier you mentioned disproportionate power, the southern states having disproportionate power to a certain extent still. Um, but also when the Electoral College was uh, determined, I guess, it was to appease southern states, correct? Well, that was that's sort of correct. I mean, the, 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 the big issue that the founders, well, there was a lot of issues the founders were wrestling with, but one of the biggest one was representation in the Congress. And that's when they ended up coming up with the bicameral legislature where there's two senators from every state. And then um, the House of Representatives is determined by population. And part of that representation formula was the three-fifths compromise, which counted slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of representation. Now, of course, we all know slaves had no rights at all, but they certainly didn't have voting rights. Yet the South uh, or at least the white Southerners had the benefit of counting slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of their congressional representation. So they ended up having more members of Congress or members of the House of Representatives than they should. And also because the Electoral College is tied to representation in Congress, they also had disproportionate influence when it came to electing the president. Now, the three-fifths compromise went by the wayside back in 1868 with the 14th Amendment. So that no longer existed. But Ever since then, we saw a lot of voter suppression efforts of minority voters in the southern states, and these efforts even continue today. So we still have white Southerners that have disproportionate influence because they still continue to attempt and sometimes succeed in suppressing minority votes. Under a national popular vote, that doesn't make the same kind of difference on the national level. I mean, we still need to be vigilant and do everything we can to prevent that. But... Voter suppression efforts in a swing state like North Carolina, for example, will matter a lot less when it comes to electing the president. It's still regrettable that it happens, of course, but it would matter a lot less for the president. The Electoral College, I, I think, I mean, you, I'm sure you know, you've studied up on it, you know about it. The Electoral College actually is the subject of, of a lot of myths and a lot of mythology about how it came about. Um, you know, like people seem to think that all the founders had this grand plan in mind about why the Electoral College should come about. It was something that was almost handed to them from on high about this genius method of electing our president. But really what it was, was the founders couldn't agree on how they were gonna elect the president. They went back and forth, back and forth throughout the months they were at the Constitutional Convention trying to determine how they were gonna elect the president. And they never could agree on it. They, they debated many different ways. And so we're getting towards the end of the convention and uh, they, had to, they had to come up with a way how to elect the president. So. That's how they formed the Electoral College under Article 2, Section 1. They basically punted the issue to the states. And they said, hey, states, you decide how we're going to elect the president. And they all thought that was a fine decision. And so 
that's what ended up in the Constitution. So it, it, it doesn't have any kind of a design in mind um, that's right or wrong. It just says states determine how their electors are allocated. And that, as I've said before, that's the power that the national popular vote draws upon to make sure that we have this principle in place that one person equals one vote and the most votes wins. Yeah, my, my understanding of uh, that this system was born out of compromise is was essentially what you were saying, is that th these guys were tired. They were bickering, they were fighting, they didn't know what system would work, and you had this you had a, a a group of founding fathers who believed that the congress should select the the next president uh but then you had a group that argued against that saying that that just gives way too much opportunity for the executive branch and the legislative branch uh to get a little too cozy with each other um so they they abandoned that idea to a certain extent, but then some people were saying we should do a popular vote system, but then other founders were saying, well, if we did that, then it opens up the, the floodgates for a populist candidate to have significantly more power and influence over, uh, over the people and over government. So we can't have that either. And they just couldn't agree on anything. And at the end of the day, the system that we do have, it's my understanding, they weren't married to this idea as a, as a fix-all and that this should be the system that we have forever. Uh, I think they wanted us to revisit this eventually. Well, I think that um, the, the wording in Article 2, Section 1 is one of maximal flexibility. And so, of course, it allows the states to revisit it whenever they want. And in fact... As I was saying before, states started off doing something um, much different than what we see today. There was no state that started off with a winner-take-all system like we have today. Uh, but uh, once a couple of states started adopting the winner-take-all system, other states followed suit because if one state has winner-take-all and another state has, say, a congressional district system or a proportional representation system or any other system, they lose relative influence to the winner-take-all state. And so that's really how we ended up where we are. Um, but uh, you're right. There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Federalist Papers. There's nothing in the writings of our founders that occurred after the convention was done that would indicate that the current system is what they had in mind. They wrote the language very broadly, and states have very broad and also exclusive power to determine how we elect the president as a result. And moving forward to today, when we talk about disproportionate power, um, this is, I think it, it's more of a, a topic of conversation around the Supreme Court nominee at this point, um, but it all factors into, at the end of the day, the presidential election, when you have, I think it's like 15 states representing 38 million people with 30 Republican senators. And only the Senate has an opportunity to vote on, on a Supreme Court justice. Um, that's less of a population than California, who only has two Democratic senators. And Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. have zero representatives. Um, so the disproportionate power impacts not just our, our Senate, but also how we elect 
a president because, and I'm using this information to get to what's happening. There's reports out of Pennsylvania that they might not certify the election based on the popular vote if they determine or if they feel like there's shenanigans uh, going on with, with the ballots. Now, that's a significant amount of power to take away from an individual's vote or from an individual who voted for them to say, if we feel like things aren't on the up and up, we're just not going to go with the popular vote and we're going to determine who the next president is uh, or who Pennsylvania's delegates go to. That's pretty frightening. Right. And, you know, I think under the plain language of Article 2, Section 1, the legislature in that state could determine they could decide to do that because the authority is so wide under Article 2, Section 1. Um, and under, a national, or under the current system, that could make a huge difference. If it all comes down to Pennsylvania, then the Pennsylvania legislature could just decide, well, we're going to change the way our electors are allocated from a popular vote within the state to state legislature chosen or whatever in order to change that around. They could do that. Under a national popular vote, that wouldn't happen because there would be enough states within the agreement that have already agreed to allocate their electors towards the candidate who wins the most votes nationwide. So these localized shenanigans or uh, teams of attorneys that are descending on some of these swing states to try to see if they can flip legislatures, um, that would be really pure fantasy. I think right now it's more outlandish, um, but not fantasy because technically it could happen, certainly. Um, but uh, that's part of what I was saying before about the national popular vote. It, it really makes the election a lot more straightforward, just like every other election that we deal with where the most votes wins. In a national popular vote, the presidential candidate that gets the most votes nationwide wins, period. There's two ways about it. There's no second place winner. There's no runner-up winner. The most votes wins. And um, all of these uh, these weird things that we're seeing happening where Florida comes down to 537 votes in 2000 or Pennsylvania could determine how their electors are allocated differently or whatever, you know, foreign adversaries targeting Wisconsin voters or trying to suppress turnout in Michigan, whatever the case may be, that's not going to be nearly as big of an issue under a national popular vote. And that, that brings us to Prop 113, um, Colorado Proposition 113, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact Referendum, which is a mouthful, um, yeah. is on the ballot in Colorado. Uh, and the language that I see, it says, as a veto referendum. Um, can you, yeah, give us a little uh, idea of what this, what this proposition is? Right. It's a little bit confusing because we're used to initiatives, which is um, an effort to put something into law that's not already there. A referendum is an effort to take something out of the law that's already there. And uh, that's the case with Proposition 113. We passed it. The governor signed it, but opponents of the bill don't want it to be in Colorado law. And so they gathered enough signatures in order to put it on the ballot. And that's why it's called in what you read a veto referendum. But what's a little bit confusing about it also is 
people ask, well, how do I vote? <laughs> you know, if, if I like the national popular vote, do I vote against the referendum or do I vote for the referendum? That's where it gets confusing. So just to be clear to your listeners, if you're in Colorado, if you like the national popular vote, you should vote yes on Proposition 113 because the language asks voters to approve of Colorado's membership in the national popular vote. Shall the following act of the General Assembly be approved? An act joining Colorado to the national popular vote agreement, otherwise known as Senate Bill 19-042. So if you like the national popular vote, you should be yes on Proposition 113. And who are, who are the groups opposing this? And what is their what is their argument? That's well, um, that's an interesting story, just like so many things. So um, it, it also comes about with a little bit of recent history. In, in Colorado, we've been trending blue. Uh, we were considered a swing state back in 2008 in particular. We had the Democratic Convention here in 2008 because of that. And uh, that year, the state went for Obama, the Democratic candidate. We were considered swing again in 12, but we still went for Obama. We were considered somewhat of a swing state in 16, but Hillary Clinton took the state. So we've been a blue state since 2008. And in 2018, every single statewide elected office went to the Democratic candidate. And also the margin that we have in the Colorado State House is the largest it's been, I think, since the Great Depression or something. Yeah. So it's been, we're, so the, the Republicans in the state um, really is, is uh, back in 2000 through 2004, it was the opposite. The Republicans controlled everything. And so it's changed over the last 20 years. But 2018 were really historic defeats for the Republicans. And so once we went into 2019, there were a number of Republicans and activists on the Republican side that were looking for something. You know, they were looking for some kind of a way to, to engage their voters to, to have a win. And so they initiated a number of recall elections or attempted to initiate recall elections of elected officials. The governor polls was the subject of one. Several state legislators were the subject of one. In order to do a, a successful recall, you have to gather enough signatures and then it goes on the ballot and then the voters have to vote to recall. And this was part of that effort to really fire up the base. Our senator, Senator Cory Gardner, Republican, um, his political action committee gave the um, opponents of the national popular vote some seed money to start uh, fundraising in order to try to gather enough money to pay signature gatherers to put this on the ballot. And so it was from the beginning designed as a way to really engage their voters and engage their base. And they certainly have been successful in doing that. They've engaged their base and, uh, and uh, certainly there's really no changing some minds of, of the people that are against the national popular vote. But that was really the intent of it to begin with. So they, they gathered their signatures, they put it on the ballot, and, um, and here we are in 2020 to, to, uh, to actually vote on it. So some of the arguments that they use include, uh, I, I would say the first and foremost argument is what I call the California boogeyman argument. Um, what they typically say is, look, if a national popular vote goes into place, then California and New York are going to determine who our president is. Now, they always mention California and New York because that's really code for saying that a Democrat is going to win. Mm -hmm. California is the biggest state, but New York's only the fourth biggest state. The, the most populous states in order are California, then Texas, then Florida, then New York, then Pennsylvania. And nobody ever says, 
well, you know, if the national popular vote goes into place, then Texas and Florida are going to determine our president. It's always California and New York, the coastal elites, the blue states. But if you take a look at the um, voting patterns of the top five most populous states, just look at 2016, for example. If you add up all the votes in those top five most populous states, they split almost exactly down the middle 50-50 between Republican and Democrat. So a national popular vote would not give a Democrat or a Republican an inherent advantage in the election. Um, but that doesn't matter so much to the opponents of the national popular vote because they kind of have this visceral reaction against the blue states of New York and California. And those are populated states. Colorado is the 21st biggest state, you know, so it, it's got a significantly less population than, than those states. Um, but when you do the math and uh, you just know that it's, it's not there, it's not possible for California and New York alone to determine who wins the presidency now. And it would not be possible under a national popular vote either, but the truth really gets in the way of a good talking point. Yeah, no kidding. Cause honestly, that argument falls apart immediately once they say California and New York, the states would be able to determine it because a popular vote is the people of those states would get to elect the next president. Um, so they're yeah. still in their minds thinking and 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 talking about individual states selecting the president. I get what they're what they're getting at, um, but then the onus is on them to get to those states and campaign and try and 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 pitch your message and maybe change your platform to appeal to people uh, who might want to vote for you. Uh, as opposed to alienating them and saying that they're coastal elites and, uh, you know, Harvard-educated people, they won't vote Republican. Well, well, you know, what's really interesting about that is that there actually are millions of Republicans that live in California and New York. And so um, just like there's millions of Democrats that live in Texas. Uh, but the candidates of, of, of both parties don't, they don't bother to campaign in any of those states because California and New York are safely blue states. And uh, Texas, at least for now, is a red state. So um, there's millions of voters in those states that neither candidate is, is campaigning to try to get. Now, compare that to any statewide election. Um, you know, here in Colorado, uh, let's just take the governor's race. Um, the governor's race back in 2018 saw the, both governor candidates campaign throughout the entire state, even though Denver Metro has a lot of people and the Front Range has a lot more people than the Western Slope. The, both the candidates, all candid, they all campaigned all around the state, um, including on the Western Slope. Now, um, the candidate that won, Jared Polis, the Democratic candidate, he knew he was not going to get 50% or more of the vote in um, some of the rural counties on the Western Slope. But he still campaigned there because he was trying to get 40% or 42%. Under the, national, uh, or under the current system for president, there's no incentive to do that. If you get 49.9% of the vote in a state, you lose everything. You have to get 50% plus one in order to win. You have to get the majority of votes in order to win. So why would a Republican candidate go to a blue state and campaign? Why would a Democratic candidate go to a red state like, say, Mississippi or South Dakota and campaign when they're going to lose? The only states they go to are the swing states, like what we've been talking about, Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Florida. Arizona's won this year. And those are the states that they have to win in order to win the presidency. So 
the system right now really is warped in favor of those swing states and it leaves the rest of us out. It leaves out Oregon, it leaves out Colorado, it leaves out 40 plus some states because um, we're not competitive swing states. Is there some truth to their argument when you look at the last, I think it's the last five presidential elections, the Republican candidate has only won the popular vote one time. And I believe that was in 2004 when we were in the middle of two massive wars uh, and we rallied around uh, the, the flag and, and the president. And it was very difficult for people uh, to abandon uh, the the president at that time, uh, I think the term at that that they used was you don't change a horse in midstream, um, mm-hmm. and then they uh, disparaged John Kerry and said that he was a traitor and he looked French, and then he ended up Bush ended up winning uh, the popular vote. But out of the last five presidential elections, uh, they've only won the popular vote one time. That's true. Um, that is true. But also keep in mind that that's not how you win the election. You right now under the current system, you don't win by winning the national popular vote. So um, I, I don't think that we could say that Republicans would would lose if we went to a national popular vote because the candidates would campaign differently. Um, even Donald Trump has said that. You know, I don't usually quote him, mm-hmm. but he said back when he was asked about this after he won in 2016. He said under a popular vote, he would have campaigned differently. And that's that's true. The candidates would certainly campaign differently under a national popular vote. They wouldn't just focus on a couple of swing states. They wouldn't just go to Michigan five times in the last five days. Or like in 2000, George W. Bush, he put all the cards on Florida, all of his resources, all of his visits. His brother Jeb was the governor. I mean, everything was on the table in Florida, just one state out of 50 and he won but if it was a national popular vote it wouldn't be the same so um it is true that republican candidates have not won a popular vote except for one time um over the last five elections but the system would be totally different under a national popular vote so it's hard to say what it would have been yeah you're absolutely right and i think I'm playing devil's advocate, you know, because uh, I've heard that argument before. But the reality is, I, I think it didn't happen between like 1888 and 2000. You know, typically whoever won the popular vote at that time or, or between that time won uh, won the presidency. It's only recently since 2000, the last 20 years, been very consistent uh, where the winner of the popular vote does not win uh, the the election, I could be I could be mistaken on a couple of those dates, but I'm pretty fairly certain that that's that's the case. You're right. Um, yeah, it's it happened with three presidents back in the 1800s, and it's happened twice. Two out of our last three presidents, it's happened. But there also were a number of near misses in the interim as well. There was a near miss in 1976, also a near miss in 2004. You know, you talked about that election. George W. Bush did win the popular vote that year, but he would have lost the Electoral College had John Kerry flipped 60,000 votes in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So John Kerry would have been a second place winner that would have assumed the presidency had that happened. Uh, so, um, and, you know, it seems like 
the, the trend has been where we've had less and less competitive swing states uh, over the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, um, Richard Nixon, I think, was the last president to actually go to all 50 states, and that's just because he promised that he would do that during the campaign. And since then, we've seen the number of competitive swing states consistently shrink. So now we have maybe 10 swing states out of 50. On a good day, maybe you're getting to a dozen, like in 2016 and 2012, there was maybe a dozen. Mm. But truly, there's only maybe six that are really, truly swing states. That's not a lot. So, you know, it comes down to just a few states now, and the projections are that we'll continue to be that way. I've seen some very credible analyses that, Donald Trump could lose the popular vote this time around by as many as 5 million and still in the electoral college. So the way our campaigns now, how they're, they're hyper-focused and they're really able to, to find voters and get those voters to vote for them and how they're so focused on those just couple of swing states, it, it doesn't seem like this trend is going to go away anytime soon under the current system. Yeah, it certainly it certainly doesn't feel that way. And I've got the the language here for uh, Prop One Thirteen uh, ballot measure in Colorado. It says uh, a yes vote supports Colorado joining the national popular vote interstate compact, which would give the states nine electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national popular vote. If states representing at least 270 electoral college votes adopt the compact, which is exactly what you said, a no vote opposes making Colorado part of the national popular vote interstate compact, thereby continuing to give the states nine electoral votes to the presidential candidate winning the most votes in Colorado. To me, this method, voting on a proposition like this, whether whether it's the national popular vote or whether it was gay marriage or legalization of marijuana or what have you, this method of voting, individuals voting on ballot measures that directly impact them, as opposed to electing officials, no offense to you, uh, to represent them, is in my view one of the most pure forms of democracy that we have an otherwise representative form of government. Uh, do you share that view? Of course, and that's what it's designed to do. I mean, it's designed to give the people a true voice. And if they don't agree with what the representatives are doing, then they can pass laws on their own. And um, that's that's the point. And of course, that's, that's our system and we should embrace it. Um, but I, I think what you might be getting at, if I can step a couple steps forward, is that it's kind of ironic that the opponents of the national popular vote do not want democracy, yeah. but they're doing it in a democratic way. <laughs> and right. so we've certainly thought about that. And, and w when they were collecting signatures, um, there were a number of things that we could have done to try to slow it down, try to get people to decline to sign. We could have run a campaign. Um, we didn't do any of that because we, we believe strongly that people should have a say. But, um, and, and, but of course, I think it's not lost on a lot of folks on our side that we have uh, a group that is bemoaning more pure of a democracy and doing it in a way that actually is direct democracy. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you could very easily just strip this, all this language down and say that voting yes 
is supporting democracy. It's it's literally your one person, one vote. Um, a yes vote supports democracy. A no vote uh, supports the current system that we're in, which is not uh, not democracy. Uh, there's a lot of countries around the world that that actually send ballots to uh, to their residents. I think Switzerland is is one of them where where they get to vote on legislation on pieces of law on on law um and i mean that is a direct democracy and we're a long ways away from that so when I, when i see things like this proposition 113 i get excited that it's it's relevant it's meaningful it's historic um it's it's really exciting i don't know it's really exciting for me well um i'm glad you're excited about it we're excited about it too and certainly we're hoping to get um uh, at least the majority of folks in Colorado excited about it too. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned about the democracy part, you're exactly right, that this is, this is democracy. One person, one vote is democracy. Um, a lot of times what we hear pushback is um, somebody that, that thinks they're super smart. They always say, well, didn't you know that we're a Republican, not a democracy? Well, the answer is we're actually both. We are a Republic because we elect our elected officials to represent us. But we're also a democracy because we do things like direct democracy, like ballot initiatives, and, and voting each of us on the representatives that represent us. So there's nothing about a national popular vote that changes the fact that we're a republic. Uh, but there is, the national popular vote does actually make sure that we're a much stronger democracy within that republic. And making sure that everybody's vote counts, making sure that every voter matters, is going to make a huge difference in how the presidents or the presidential campaigns actually try to get presidents elected. And then we haven't really talked about this, but it'll make a huge difference in how those presidents govern. Mm. The presidents that end up winning will govern differently too, because they know in order to win again, they have to come up with policies and in a way that um, the majority of Americans agree with as opposed to just giving some goodies to some of the swing states in order to win re-election. And we, we see that time and time again from presidents of both parties. And just most recently, um, President Trump has announced that he wants to give $13 billion of aid to Puerto Rico as a response to Hurricane Maria. Well, you know, that hurricane came through three years ago. And President Trump has been pretty steadfast in giving Puerto Rico any aid. But... We're in 2020 now, and it just so happens there's a number of Puerto Rican Americans that have the right to vote in Florida. Right. In order to win those votes, he's deciding he's going to give $13 billion of aid to Puerto Rico. Well, he should have done that three years ago. But that's just, just one example of many, many examples where the policy of the administration is completely warped by our current system. If we have a national popular vote in place, the majority of Americans have to be considered, and not just one specific group in one specific state. Now, let's move to the last part of the the dialogue that I read here where it says if states representing at least 270 electoral college votes adopt the compact. As you said earlier, you're not quite there yet. I think you said 197, is that correct? 196. Mm-hmm. One, and regardless of whether this vote passes yes or no, it's, it, well, I guess I should say if, if 
the measure passes, it doesn't change, right? It still remains at 196. That that number factors in Colorado already. Now, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical in that if we were to expand the United States and allow D.C. statehood or Puerto Rico statehood and that 270 electoral vote changes, do we then need to adjust for, I guess, electoral inflation at that point? Is this null and void uh, because we've we've brought D.C. into uh, statehood? Well, D.C. does have electoral votes now, and so that's part of the equation right now. True. Um, sorry. They did have three votes. Yeah. yeah. Puerto Rico does not. So, yeah, there would have to be a different equation. I, I don't have a sense of how many electoral votes Puerto Rico would have, but let's just say it would be five. You know, that would be the same size as uh, New Mexico, for example, or same population as New Mexico. I, I don't even know if that's the case. Then, yeah, you'd have to expand the math a little bit. So 270 would not be what's necessary to win, but say 273 would be what's necessary to win the presidency. So, again, you would have to have enough states that make up that magic number join the agreement before it goes into effect. Would the process start all over again, or would would you just have to pick up that difference? Just pick up the difference. Because all the states have signed on, and in all of the pieces of legislation, it, it always says, once enough states that constitute a majority of the electors join the agreement, and this agreement goes into effect. So I keep talking about 270 because that's the number. But really what it is is a majority of the presidential electors throughout the country. Gotcha. Okay. I just I want to make sure that that language wasn't specific to 270 because I could see some legal hurdles, which actually brings me to the next point is, are there any potential legal hurdles that, that you can see um, from this once we do get to 270? Well, I'm sure there's going to be litigation. In fact, there's a, a think tank out of Oklahoma that's really taken the lead on opposing the national popular vote throughout the country, including here in Colorado. And they've all but promised to bring a lawsuit if this ever goes into effect. And they can't do it now because it's not in effect, so it would be moot. But once it goes into effect, I'm sure there's going to be litigation around it. I, I don't think that litigation will be successful, um, but I can't see that far into the future either. I mean, I think any good lawyer will tell you they, they can never be 100% certain of anything in the law. But I think that we have a very, very strong case based on the plain language of the Constitution and also based on even recent Supreme Court jurisprudence, there was a case that just came out of the Supreme Court this year. It's called Chiaflo v. Washington. It was the so-called faithless elector case where there was electors in Washington state as well as in Colorado that um, did not want to vote pursuant to how the popular vote came out in those states in order to convince Trump electors to vote for somebody else so that Trump could not take the White House in 2016. And there was a, they were not allowed to do that. They brought suits saying that violated their First Amendment rights, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Well, the Supreme Court found that state laws binding electors were valid, first and foremost. But they also talked a lot about the state's rights under the Constitution in order to determine how electors were allocated. Seven of the justices agreed that Article 2, Section 1 was clear and that it allowed the states to choose their electors in the way the states determined to be appropriate. The other two agreed with that conclusion, but they came to that conclusion through the 10th Amendment. 
Um, but either way, all nine Supreme Court justices believe that, or all nine at the time believed that the states have this power. And so that's the power the national popular vote uses in order to reallocate our electors. And, and I think it's pretty, pretty strong. Um, there's other arguments that have been made about the legality of it. There's, there's one argument that opponents make about the interstate compacts clause. That's article one, section 10 of the U S constitution, which says that Congress has to approve interstate compacts. And on its face, I think that language could be a little concerning, but when you take a look at the actual um, precedent and case law around it, it's clear the U S Supreme court says that only interstate compacts that, that affect federal power need to have approval of Congress. Hmm. So, you know, for example, if there was an interstate compact about um, uh, water rights that were, was going between states, um, you know, that, that would require federal uh, congressional approval. Not presidential approval. It's not like a law where the president has to sign it. It's just congressional approval. But that same case law has also said that if it's a compact between states that only affects state uh, functions, like a state tax code, for example, then it does not need congressional approval. And we've already talked about how under Article 2, Section 1 of the Electoral College, that uh, the, the way we elect our president is purely a state function. There's no actual federal election. There's no federal equivalent of a secretary of state or election official. And it's all a state-based system. So that could be an argument that they, they would use. I would expect them to use it. But again, I... I don't feel too badly about it. I think that it stands a chance. I'm sure there will be the kitchen sink thrown at it during the litigation, but it's been vetted and there have been all kinds of objections brought up over the course of the last 15 years since it's been introduced in states. And a lot of smart lawyers have taken a look at it and they agree that it's constitutionally sound. The final decision will be made by those nine individuals in the black robes in Washington, but I think it stands a really good chance of succeeding. And if you're in Colorado or really anywhere else, because uh, this is this is fascinating, and eventually, hopefully, if it hasn't already come to your state, it might uh, in upcoming elections. You can check out the website, yes on one thirteen at yes on nationalpopularvote.com. Uh, that is yes on nationalpopularvote. Dot com. There's a ton of information on on the website uh, for you know. There's news, endorsements, events, uh, and a whole section on breaking down myths, uh, which we touched on a little bit, and uh, even ways that you can volunteer uh, to to make sure that this gets passed in in Colorado. Uh, Mike, yeah. was there was there anything else that uh, that you wanted to to talk about directly? Uh, to to Colorado voters. Well, um, so to Colorado voters specifically, we just of course asked to get the word out and make sure that we vote yes on Proposition One Thirteen for one person, one vote, and to make sure the candidate with the most votes wins. For those voters outside of state, outside of Colorado, of course you can still contribute to the effort. Uh, you go to that website you mentioned, which was yes on nationalpopularvote dot com, and you can volunteer or donate. But uh, if you're also curious in another state about some of the efforts that have occurred or are likely to occur to bring the national popular vote to that state, there is the national website that goes over all of those efforts that have been occurring since 2006. And that one is just simply nationalpopularvote.com. 
So nationalpopularvote.com, and right at the top, it has links to every single state where there's been legislation introduced, which has been most of the states. It has not passed in some of those states, but there has been bills introduced in some of those states. And so you can take a look at it. It's very easy to take a look at if you live in Virginia, for example, or if you live in um, Nevada or whatever, you can take a look at that state and you can see, well, there was a bill introduced five years ago. It passed one chamber, but not the next, or there's been two bills introduced or it passed back in 2008 or whatever the case may be. And you can see that. So I would encourage your listeners uh, that live outside of Colorado to take a look at that as well. And just because this has or has not come up for a vote in your state legislature doesn't mean that it cannot end up as a ballot initiative. Um, you, this could end up as a ballot initiative in your state, even if your state hasn't uh, brought this up for a vote, um, or if they have and they voted it down. Uh, this is this is you know one of the methods that we saw with, like I said earlier, with gay marriage uh, or same-sex marriage and legalization of marijuana. Whether states refuse to take this up, uh, you can get a, a ballot measure on. Uh, the ballot and and allow the people to to have a say. Um, and this is definitely do your research and and learn about this. There's there's a lot of information uh, on these websites that can help you help you do this. You can do that, of course. So that's your right to do it. I would encourage you if you do believe strongly in the national popular vote in your state to take a look at the nationalpopularvote.com website and try to work through that organization hmm. to see what kind of efforts are already being undertaken. And it's likely there have been efforts recently or there will be in the near future. So try to plug into those efforts or at least see what's going on. And uh, you might find some, 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 something worthwhile to be a part of in those other states. Do you miss it? Politics? <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's a, that's a question that probably requires a little bit longer answer than you have time for. But I guess I'll tell you, um, so I'm not technically done yet. I mean, I will be at the end of the year, so I still have the title, but there's really no responsibilities at this point because we're out of session. So I'm really kind of transitioning out of it. Um, I've been in it for eight years, and I, I very much appreciate the opportunity to have done it. I think that it's, it, was a, it was an honor to be in the state legislature, and, and during that time there, I feel like I helped to accomplish a lot of good stuff. On the other hand, like anything, it's time, in my opinion, has kind of uh, come and gone. I mean, there are a lot of difficult things about being in the legislature, too. Um, and uh, for me, it was having to try to maintain a full-time job in addition to my legislative duties, in addition to my family. And um, that just wore on me after a while. So I just didn't think I could do it for another four years. And so I decided last year not to run again and decided to, to hang it up at that point. And now I'm just doing my law practice full time and family time and that kind of thing. So I'm glad I did it, but I also know that it was the right time for me to be done. I just knew it in my gut. So I don't regret the decision, but uh, I would encourage anyone that really wants to make a difference to consider running for state legislature. It's just their situation, um, you know, was could be a little different than mine. I found that there's the people that that uh, aren't quite as stressed serving the legislature or kind of your, you know, dual income, no kids folks or retired folks, you know, people that are a little different situation in their life. And um, they don't have that additional stressor of trying to maintain a full-time job. 
but for those of us that did that, it, it was, it, it's difficult for sure, but worthwhile. And I'm glad that I did it. Yeah. I mean, look, that what you said resonates with, with people. It resonated with me. It's, it's incredibly difficult to be, uh, present as, uh, a, a spouse, a father, uh, in your business, um, all at the same time, and then throw being a legislature on top of that, it's very difficult. I mean, for a lot of Americans, you know, before the pandemic, I was, you know, I was working 70, 80 hours a week, and I could do that very well. But I struggled with my relationship. I can't do both great. You know, you only have so much fuel in the tank. So I think that, you know, what, what you said it resonates with with people. Uh, you were one of the good ones, man. And, uh, it's, it, it hurts when you lose, uh, somebody like that, but, uh, I certainly, I certainly don't blame you and, and you did a hell of a job. Uh, you got a hundred percent rating on, uh, from the organizations that, that counted and a 0% rating from the organizations that, uh, that don't. <laughs> so, so you should hang your hat on that and be proud. Yeah, I, the zero percent rating from some of those uh, not as desirable organizations went a long way in my district. I would talk about that a lot. So <laughs> that that's a good thing, uh, in in my opinion, it means I stood for the right things. But uh, again, I'm happy that I had the opportunity, and it allowed me to do things like this, like the national popular vote. So I'm I'm very thankful for it, and thankful for you taking the time to discuss it. Certainly, you've done your research and you know the topic very well. So. I really appreciate the opportunity and the conversation. Yeah, I'm a nightmare to live with because I love this stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate your time, Mike. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. uh, Good for now. Okay, very good. Thank you. This is the part I don't like, but it's important. A lot of podcasts release new episodes on Monday, but we cover issues that impact people every day, so we release new episodes as soon as they're complete. Make sure to subscribe to get notified when new episodes are available. You can subscribe on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are available. You can even visit our website at gfnpodcast.com and subscribe to get notified before an episode is even released. This podcast is all about keeping the conversation going, so we want to hear from you. Be a part of the conversation by leaving us a voice message at anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now. Nobody's going to remember that. Nobody. All right, I'll say it again. Anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now. If you remember that, leave me a message. If you leave us a voice message, there's a good chance we'll play it on an upcoming episode and talk about it. Tell us how much you love an episode or how much you hate it and why, or ask us a question that maybe deserves more attention and we'll try to answer it. If you don't want to leave us a voice message, you can still be part of the conversation by sending a secure email on our website at gfnpodcast.com. We talk about a lot of problems in the world, but we also talk about solutions. So stay informed and stay connected and subscribe now.
Yeah. 